Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 193. We'll continue in the Proverbs with a brief summary of chapters 8 through 11 and follow up with some thoughts about Facebook. Proverbs chapter 8 begins like many a Peanuts comic strip, with wisdom like Lucy setting up her stand to dispense well wisdom, and not even for a nickel. Then again, from her opening remarks to the passers-by, she probably wouldn't get many takers. Quote, Understand shrewdness, you dupes and fools. Make your heart understand. Listen, for I speak noble things, my mouth's utterance, uprightness. Her pitch gets even more emphatic. Quote, Mine is counsel and prudence. I am discernment. Mine is might. Through me, kings reign, and rulers decree righteous laws. Through me, Princes hold sway, and nobles, all the judges of earth. So listen up. Quote, Riches and honor are with me, long-lasting wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than all fine gold, and my yield than the choicest silver. On the path of righteousness I walk, within the ways of justice, to pass substance onto my lovers and their storehouses to fill. Convinced yet? Okay, so wisdom comes with receipts. Quote, Adonai created me at the outset of his way, the very first of his works of old. In remote eons I was shaped, at the start of the first things of earth. When there were no deeps, I was spawned. When there were no wellsprings, water sources, before mountains were anchored down, before hills, I was spawned. So perhaps it might be a good idea to listen, eh? Quote, Happy the man who listens to me, to wait at my doors day after day, to watch the posts of my portals. For who finds me has found life, and will be favored by Adonai, and who offends me lays waste his life. All who hate me love death. Chapter 9 presents the images of two women standing in the entranceway of their respective homes. The first is wisdom, the second is folly. Wisdom's house stands with seven hewn pillars, her table laid out with wine and meat. She sent out her servants to invite guests, quote, Whoever the dupe, let him turn aside here, the senseless, she said to him. Come, partake of my bread, and drink the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live, and stride on the way of discernment. Before we get to the house of folly, Shlomo drops some wisdom on us, shining some light on the relationship between the scoffer and the wise. For example, quote, Rebuke not the scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke the wise, and he will love you. Give to the wise, he will get more wisdom. Inform the righteous, he will increase instruction. And now we enter the home of folly. With its hostess sitting at the entrance, extending invites. Quote, Whoever the dupe, let him turn aside here, and the senseless, she said to him, stolen waters are sweet, and purloined bread is delicious. And he does not know that shades are there in the depths of Sheol, her guests. Chapter 10 begins the second section of Proverbs. It will end in chapter 22, verse 16. This section is chock full of maxims and sayings, no speeches. These maxims juxtapose good and evil and delve into questions like who or what is good and who or what is evil. In this chapter, we'll focus on the righteous and the wicked with 14 maxims which deal with them explicitly. And it's clear what the message is here. Quote, the memory of the righteous is for a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. 
Then you have seven more maxims about the wise and the fool. And again, no surprises here. Who comes out on top? Quote, through much talk misdeed will not cease, but the shrewd man holds his tongue. Then we move on to the diligent and the lazy with three maxims. And again, quote, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, thus the sluggard to those who send him. Chapter 11 continues dropping these sayings. There's no overarching theme, but sometimes they connect because of a word in one resonates in another or two follow a similar structure. There are some sayings about the righteous and upright when it's appropriate to talk and when silence is better how the good woman is a good mate to the righteous man, and how the righteous will prosper while the wicked will wither. Here's a quick distillation of this chapter's wisdom. Ready? It's good to be righteous for the individual and for the people in their life. There are things that you probably shouldn't do to other people, like gossiping. Whoever gives in the end receives, and a person's character is the most attractive thing about them. Perhaps it's the conceit of our generation and our time to think that what we're experiencing is unique in human history, or perhaps it's just me. But my impulse is kind of the opposite. I, I tend to think that, a little like Kohelet, that there is nothing new beneath the sun, but also that history doesn't repeat itself, but kind of rhymes. And I imagine Mark Twain would be really chuffed to know how many quips are attributed to him, including the latter. He probably said, like, five really clever things, but because they were so clever and made such a strong impression, we ascribe like every piece of wisdom ever uttered to old Samuel Clemens. Suppose you were an idiot, and suppose you were a member of Congress, but I repeat myself. In any event, I'm one of those aging folks who lived a significant chunk of their lives before the advent of Facebook. I remember it when it was limited exclusively to adults and my middle school students spoofed their birthdays so they could get on the social network. And I remember telling administrators at my school that they better come up with some social media policy because this thing is coming for all of us. And I remember how my memo was filed accordingly. And perhaps our time is a truly unique one in that change comes at us so quickly William Gibson said, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. I don't think my grandparents felt that way. I don't think their grandparents felt that way. I imagine that folks in the 12th century could have lived 20 lifetimes and not experienced the kind of change we experience in one generation. Keep in mind, the first iPhone came out in 2007. I remind my kids that their grandparents, at least the ones that grew up in Palestine, grew up with one radio and no home phone. And in their lifetimes, they lived through record players, black and white televisions, corded landlines, eight-track cassette decks, color TVs, audio cassettes, cordless phones, VCR CDs, dial-up internet, laser discs, high-speed internet, and DVDs to where we are today. I imagine the folks my parents' age who grew up in North America skipped a couple of those earlier steps, all of which is to say that Facebook is terrible and the good it does for some is far outstripped by the havoc and destruction it wreaks upon us all on a daily basis. 
Now, perhaps the radio or 8-track cassette deck might have had people riveted in their homes, listening for hours on end, but I don't think that its designers were even aware of the concept of variable rewards when they put those devices together. What is this concept all about, and how did Facebook capitalize on it? Well, it all started with psychologist and behaviorist B.F. Skinner and his infamous Skinner boxes. In the 1930s, he took a box and installed a lever that would release food whenever pressed, then took a hungry rat and put it in the box. The rat soon discovered that when you press the lever, food appears, and so whenever it was placed in the box, it would race over to the lever and press it for food. Skinner then changed up the experiment. He varied the reward. Sometimes pressing the lever didn't result in food which resulted in the rat pressing the lever even more. Even when Skinner stopped giving food altogether, the rat kept pressing the lever. The reward appeared to be more powerful when it was unpredictable. You're a fucking rat in a maze. Fast forward to the 1940s. Two researchers, James Olds and Peter Milner, implanted electrodes in the brains of lab mice that enabled the mice to give themselves tiny electric shocks to a small area called the nucleus accumbens. The mice quickly became hooked on the sensation. They would forego food, water, and even run across a painful electrified grid for the opportunity to continue pressing the lever that administered the shocks. Even when the machine was turned off, they continued pressing the button. So for decades, science assumed that the nucleus accumbens was activated when people experienced a sensation they defined as pleasurable. This was reinforced by further study, which demonstrated that the area processes rewarding feelings about things like food, sex, money, and social acceptance. Until... 2008, when Stanford professor Brian Knudsen conducted a study exploring blood flow in the brains of people wagering while inside of an fMRI machine. Test subjects played a gambling game, while Knudsen and his team looked at which areas of their brains became more active. They discovered that the nucleus accumbens was not activating when the reward was received, but rather in anticipation of it. So what draws us to act is not the sensation we receive from the reward itself, but the need to alleviate the craving for that reward. It's the stress of desire in the brain that compels us. On top of that, there is dopamine, the neurotransmitter associated with rewards and addictive substances. It's a pretty heady addictive cocktail, which the designers of Facebook give and withhold by design. Because notifications aren't delivered to users in a regular, consistent manner. An algorithm dispenses them at irregular times. Sometimes there's nothing waiting for you. Sometimes there's a friend request. Sometimes someone commented on your post. Sometimes it's just filler. The irregularity of the pattern will keep you coming back. So this would be bad enough. More Huxley's Brave New World rather than Orwell's 1984. Except that Facebook is also one of the biggest dispensers of what passes for news in the present moment. And I'm sure you've seen the meme, or some variation thereof, a Facebook user is confronted by research and facts and responds with, well, this guy I went to high school with says the opposite on Facebook, so suck it, libtard. You are fake news. In 2016, Facebook had 1.8 
billion, with a B, users. And according to the Pew Research Center, 44% of Americans got their news from the site. Now, if you read the study, which I did not read in its entirety, but I did read the four pages of analysis on their website, you won't find the 44% stat, but you will find two others. First, 67% of American adults report that they use Facebook. Among those, another 66% answer yes to the question, do you ever get news or news headlines on Facebook? The question defines news very loosely as information about events and issues that involve more than just your friends and family. So if you multiply 66% by 67%, you get 44% of American adults saying they ever get news or information on Facebook, which is fine, I guess. And there's other studies about how old those 44 percenters are, but the most entertaining aspect of that study is the assumption that it's mostly boomers who've embraced Facebook as the source of news and their primary mode of expressing themselves politically. Okay, boomer, okay, boomer, okay, boomer, okay, boomer. The Facebook group called A Group Where We All Pretend to Be Boomers has jumped on this trend. Most of the people in the over quarter million strong group are actually Gen Z and Millennials, and they write posts with spelling mistakes or in all caps or in non sequiturs, and most prominently, they write posts with gifts of minions. They also ironically post fake news in the group. So you'll have posts like these. It's with great sadness in my heart that my 49-year-old son Shane died this morning, surrounded by that emoji that doesn't mean crying. Or, I'm looking for a microwave, a good one, well, bye. Or, help, in all caps, dot, dot, dot. Does Fitbit run on Wi-Fi or Bluetooth? I don't want Wi-Fi running through my body. Or, in all caps, my grandson forgot to call me on my birthday. Thanks, Obama. Or, also in all caps, Cheryl, dot, 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 show Susan. She'd get a good laugh. Also, dot, 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 Doug's mother had a heart attack. Please keep her in your thoughts and prayers. LOL. Heart emoji. Now, this is all well and good when folks are just having a laugh on the internet, but when Facebook becomes the vector for misinformation, conspiracy theories, and the most trenchant crisis in epistemology since we coined the term epistemology, we are all in very deep trouble. Because if we don't or can't know what knowledge is valid, how can we live in a society with other people? How can we communicate with anyone? Now, Shlomo ben David and his contemporaries never had to contend with this problem per se. Let's break it down. Imagine you're hanging out in the court of the palace with four fellow courtiers, and one of your peers shocks the group with a rumor about a low-level functionary. The story is so scandalous, you're not sure it could be right, but then here's your good friend reporting it, effectively vouching for it, putting their reputation on the line. Maybe you should believe it. This is what philosophers call testimony. Like that, you know, that you offer in court, except without the Bible and the swearing and the harsh penalties for perjury. Testimony happens whenever you believe something because someone else vouched for the information. Most of what we know about the world is really secondhand knowledge that comes to us through testimony. Now, I don't know about how you spend your days, but I don't really have the time to do my own research about, you know, everything that comes my way, like how airplanes fly, you know, through the sky or how many planets there are in the solar system. For a lot of it, I have to take this, that secondhand knowledge on faith or norms of testimony. That is, when someone tells me something factual, like, 
Shlomo ben David had 700 wives. Even if they are merely passing on some news they picked up somewhere, it means taking on the responsibility for it and putting their epistemic reputation, that is, their credibility as a source, at risk. Part of the reason that people believe you when you share information is tied up in the determination that you're credible and you can be held accountable if you are lying or if you're wrong. This is how we gauge the reliability of secondhand knowledge. So if we can be charitable about Facebook and Twitter and all the other platforms, for one moment, we can say that social media has different testimonial norms. If we're being less charitable, we would say that they have garbage norms or none at all. You're garbage, you kills for money. I mean, shouldn't a retweet be an endorsement? How can it not be? And when you add variable rewards and all those hits of dopamine into the mix, all that juicy information is just too tempting to ignore, even if it is bullshit. And when it's coming from one or two or a hundred of your 1,500 plus friends in a constant torrent, it's really hard to determine who said what and with what level of reliability. Did they read the whole article or just the headline? And are they really your trusted friend, someone you've actually had life experience with? Or did you add them because you have 72 friends in common? It's impossible to do any kind of reputational calculation of all these people and all the stories they share. In a weird way, Shlomo was aware of this condition. In his portrayal of Wisdom's house, with the seven pillars and the table with the meat and wine, Lady Wisdom doesn't pull punches about who her guests are supposed to be. When she sends out her servants to invite folks in, she says, quote, Whoever the dupe, let him turn aside here, the senseless, she said to him. Come, partake of my bread and drink the wine I have mixed. Forsake foolishness and live and stride on the way of discernment. In other words, Shlomo knows that we even in better, more healthy epistemic times, are senseless dupes taken in by headlines, all caps, and minion memes. You're all morons! Lady Folly knows this too. She sits at the entrance and extends invites. Quote, Whoever the dupe, let him turn aside here. And the senseless, she said to him, stolen waters are sweet and purloined bread is delicious, etc., etc. Her words echo Lady Wisdom's verbatim. But with the opposite intent, wisdom calls out the dupes and idiots to help them out of their condition. Folly wants to exploit them further. This is Facebook's business model, too. You're all morons! No matter how many times Mark Zuckerberg appears before Congress or how many assurances he offers that Facebook will do better and do more to combat disinformation and the spread of conspiracy theories or how many charitable initiatives he'll set up, it won't matter. Because as Upton Sinclair said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. As Shlomo sees it, the choice is clear. It's either wisdom and life or Facebook and death. Which do you prefer? If you like what you hear today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning five this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. 
If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 194, when we continue in the Proverbs with chapters 12 through 15.